Well, if you are visiting today, thank you so much for coming. My name's Dave. I have the privilege of being a pastor here at, at Sovereign Grace. And as Brendan said, just thanks for coming and be a part of what we're doing this morning. I've got a message that I've put together called Lord, Liar or Lunatic. For those of you that are in Sovereign Grace, this is the end of our John series, which I actually realised as I looked at it, we started on the 19th of February last year. We've been doing John for a long time. We should be experts in John by now. I, I'm pretty sure all of you could sit a pastor's college paper on John and you'd be just fine because we've covered so much ground of it. And so for us guys, we're, we're really bringing this to a conclusion. But it is a wonderful message then. If you don't know anything about John, then this is good for you too. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20. If you haven't got a Bible, no dramas, it's really no problem. I'm going to read it anyway. But if you have got a Bible, let's pull them out. And we're just going to be looking at two verses together. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Chapter 21 is really a prologue, as I said last week, about Peter. So in some ways the book finishes here in so many ways. And this is what he writes. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that in our singing, we're not just singing random words, but we're singing actually your word, truth into our lives, allowing it to dwell in us richly. Our Lord, now as we come to stand around your Bible, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you do things that no preacher ever can and bring people alive in faith? Would you cultivate faith? Would you... Would you step into our midst and change lives by your grace? Amen. One of the things that I really like about John as a whole book is right here you get to find out why he's written it. And that's not common in the Bible. In many books of the Bible you have to really read them at length and spend scholarly time to figure out why is he writing this? Who's he writing it to and when did he write it? But what, what's his point? What is he trying to say? Well, we don't have to do any work at all with John. We just turn to chapter 20, verse 30, 31, and it tells us exactly, this is why I wrote the book. I wrote the book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, the primary theme of the Gospel of John is to do with life. He wants you to experience and know true and genuine life. And that's been the theme all the way through. The very first miracle, we see the wedding of Cana. And everybody knows it. It's one of those ones, if, you, if you've grown up in any way remotely in a Christian country or with values, everybody's heard of this moment where Jesus rocked up and turned loads of water into wine, 180 gallons of it, which is quite a lot. Gets to the end of the wedding, they're running out of wine. Praise over this wine in a moment, it, over the water, it changes to wine. And you think that's a cool story, is just in of itself. But the whole point of it is that wine in that period illustrated joy and celebration and life. He's illustrating what he's come to really do. And we see that in John chapter 2. But in John chapter 10, verse 10, it, Jesus makes it explicit. He says, The thief comes to only to steal and kill and destroy. That's Satan. But I have come that you may have life, and that in abundance. You want to know what Jesus Christ came for? He didn't come just to sign of, you know, have a view, see how the world is going, or to give us a list of rules or things we need to be doing. He came on a very deliberate mission. 
He says to give us life and that in abundance. And all the way through the Gospel of John, then, he's been describing that life first. But that life is forgiveness. It's to know, even in of ourselves, even though we've committed sins in our life, that we're completely forgiven of those sins. True life is to know what it is to be reconciled to God. To know God as a friend. To know him and find our identity and our security and our purpose in him. So many people in the world are going around just wondering, what is the point of life? And Jesus Christ comes to earth as God and says, this is the point of life. And I've come to give it to you. I've come to encounter you, to spend time with you, to reconcile you to God the Father. He makes it clear then that life is to be adopted through Jesus Christ. We're not only reconciled to God the Father who made us, we're also adopted into his family. People who are once his enemies and now seated at his table as sons and daughters. We've been given that ability through faith in Jesus Christ to come into the family of God. And this life, according to John, is heaven. The glories of what heaven is. I used to think growing up that heaven would be, well, I had this idea that you'd probably be about a foot tall, little wings, fat like a cherub, and sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. And I thought, therefore, I want to go to hell. Because that sounds utterly horrendous. But John makes it clear that it's not that at all. Heaven is a place It was with a person, Jesus Christ, and everything that we have in this earth is just a mere shadow of what is to come. So glaciers and deserts and fields and joy and laughter, they're just a shadow of what we'll experience in the heavenly realms. There will be no cherubs in heaven. There are angels in heaven, but most of the time when you see them in the Bible, they're about 20 foot tall, so you don't want to meet them and they're certainly not playing a harp. You know, heaven is going to be an incredible place. And John paints that picture then, the true life is to know those things, is to know forgiveness, is to know reconciliation, is to know adoption, is to know heaven is your home. And so he paints that as a picture throughout, as his theme, that Jesus Christ came to give life and that in abundance. But a secondary theme that he gives us is belief. The entrance, if you will, to that life. And so he writes this book, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's basically making it clear that I want you to experience this life. How are you going to experience this life? Well, by believing. How are you going to believe? Well, let me tell you all about Jesus. Let me give you this evidence. Let me tell you all about him in over 20 chapters. Things that I've seen with my own eyes. Things that I've observed in others as they've encountered Jesus. Really what he's done all the way through the book, if we are perceptive, is given us evidence that demands a verdict. This is Jesus. Well, who then do you say is? Is he the Lord? Or is he a liar? Or is he just a lunatic? Well, it's my hope as we go through this this morning and really conclude the book of John and pull it all together, that if you're a believer, this would be fresh encouragement to you and strengthening of your faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, we do not need to be walking around as Christians concerned that our faith is in some way flaky or that we can't really stand strong in the person of Jesus Christ. We absolutely can. This is objective evidence that we can stand on and say, this is true. So I want you to be freshly strengthened, encouraged in your faith. But if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I trust that this message will be a moment where you can experience the evidence that John is giving us so that you can make your verdict. Who do you believe Jesus is? All the way through the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, it makes it clear that our response to that question changes everything. 
Our response to who we believe Jesus is either gives us life, both now and in the life to come, or if we reject it, allegedly that door then closes. We reject to walk through it. Our answer to who is Jesus Christ is probably the most important question that you're ever going to have to answer. Well, C.S. Lewis then gives us three options. I like it. He says that Jesus Christ was either Lord or a liar or lunatic. See, the one thing that's clear in the Bible, and particularly in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus Christ is claiming to be God. All right, it's all out there. Sometimes you meet people, and I know them, um, I meet them, I have friends that say this, that, you know, Jesus is just a good teacher, or just a good leader, or just a good bloke. And that may be the case. But he's never just that, because he claims to be God, and that changes the stakes somewhat. So in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the great I am. That's the burning bush back in the, in the book of Exodus. This is, this is God himself. That's why in, that, in the chapter of chapter 8, they then want to stone Jesus. Because they say, gosh, you're claiming to be God. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He does exactly the same thing in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. In John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus Christ is claiming to be God. Now, just because somebody claims to be God doesn't make them God. True? I was watching a program a while ago about this dude in Queensland. Do you see that? Who, who thinks that he's Jesus? And it's, I mean, you think, no, you need medication. But he really thinks he's Jesus. He's claiming to be Jesus. He's standing on that and he needs some help. One of the fascinating things about that program is he he reckoned he was married to Mary Magdalene. And then when I interviewed him and said, but you've had three wives. Did they all, were they all Mary Magdalene? He said, well, I got the first two wrong. You think, but you're Jesus. You know, could you have not figured this out? You know, there's just so many holes in what he's saying. So just because we claim to be God, it doesn't mean we are God, Right. We can claim to be the Messiah. I remember watching, in Britain, we have this program called Trisha. Did that ever come to Australia? Praise the Lord, you've been relieved because it was utterly horrendous. It was a talk show and it was really conversational. And one of the things they did was they brought on this guy who was utterly convinced he was Henry VIII and this woman who was utterly convinced she was Marilyn Monroe. And they're interviewing them about, and they're saying, you know, yes, I'm definitely Marilyn Monroe. Where were you born? She knows where he was born. She knows what she did in her childhood. And you think, you know, this is really sad, really. But they are utterly convinced. Just because somebody claims to be somebody does not make them that person. And so with Jesus then, even though he claims to be God, we do have to work out, well, was he God? Or was he a liar? Or was he a lunatic? That's what C.S. Lewis says. He says it this way. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said just would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any nonsense about him being just a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. I think that's a well-crafted piece of work. Jesus was either God, the Lord, exactly like he was claiming, or he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he was trying to convince everybody else, but he knew that he wasn't God. Or he's a lunatic. He's not God, but he really thinks he is. And even if we say, well, no, I think he was a great teacher. Fine. He was a great teacher that was either God, a liar, or a lunatic. Well, he was just a great leader then. Fine. He was a great leader who was either God, a liar, or a lunatic. Because he was claiming to be God. 
And so we have to work that out. Was he? Or was he not? Let's examine the evidence then through the Gospel of John. There are five pieces of evidence that we're just going to whiz through this morning. They're not complicated, but they're things that we all have to ascertain and work through in our lives. And the first piece of evidence John gives us are his miracles. The Saviour's miracles, his works, what he actually does. In his lifetime, Jesus performed literally hundreds of miracles. And each time he makes it clear that he's doing these miracles as an expression and a claim that he is God. He actually says, I'm doing these miracles, John 10 verse 38, to show you that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. So John's making it clear that these miracles are meant to prove that Jesus is really God. And so we have seven of them in the Gospel of John. In chapter 2 we have the wedding at Cana. I explained it before, 180 gallons of water into wine. I would have loved to have been there at that wedding. Just when you think it is dying away, suddenly the wine comes out and you think, love, extend the babysitter, we're staying longer. You know, this would just be a great moment in history to actually be there. In chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, there is the healing of the royal official's son. This guy rocks up to Jesus. His son is, in effect, dying of a fever. He rocks up to Jesus and says, listen, would you come and help me? My son is dying. And Jesus says, no. And you think, that's really awkward. Um, You know, if you're really the saviour, could you not come and help? And in effect, he says, no, I don't need to. I don't need to come with you. Go and your son will live. This guy goes home and his son is alive and well. And he says, when did the fever leave him? And it was the exact point in time when Jesus said, go and your son will live. In John chapter 6, chapter 5, we have healing of the paralytic in Bethesda. This guy has been an invalid for 38 years. He keeps trying to get into the pool to try and help himself, thinking that in some way there will be a potion in the pool that can heal him. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He says, yeah, of course I do. He says, great, get up, take your bed and walk. Exactly what he goes on to do. He stands up and off he goes. In chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. That's a lot of people that would be able to verify that this actually happened. When, gospel, when the Gospel of John was written, these people would still be alive and well. A lot of people could have, could have claimed at that point, you know what, he didn't even do that, it didn't even work like that. Well, it did work like that and no one complained about it because they were there. People were tired, people were hungry, there's no food. So Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, prays over them, multiplies out. How did that work? What did that look like? You know, did, I would have loved to have just had my face in the basket throughout. I'm just watching these fish. What would it have actually been like? And then by the end, there's fish everywhere and loaves everywhere. They're picking up scraps off the floor. Later on in chapter 6, the, the disciples are in a boat. Jesus is having some time out by himself. But then he obviously decides he wants to be with the disciples after all. But the boat's already gone. So he walks over to them on water. That's pretty cool. Not many people can actually do that. Chapter 9, healing of the man born blind. This guy has been born blind. He's never seen. Jesus spits on the ground, makes a mud pack out of the ground, puts it in his eyes, tells him to go wash at the pool of Siloam. This guy does it and instantly he can see. And in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. This guy has been dead four days. He would have stank, basically. You wouldn't have wanted to be around this guy actually coming out the tomb. The first word you would have said is, great. second word you would have said is, have a wash. Because he would have smelled awful. But this guy has been dead for four days. Jesus rocks up to the tomb. We know he's dead because everybody's crying about it. He rocks up to the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And this guy comes hopping out the tomb. Well, folks, when we accept this stuff in the Gospel of John, the first question we have to answer then are his works, his miracles. 
Are these really the miracles of a liar? Are they the miracles of a lunatic? Or are they miracles of God? The very one he was claiming to be all along. John presents it as evidence, as if to say, I want you to see these so that you may believe and have life in his name. You're struggling to believe? I get that. Here's the proof. So his miracles. Lord, liar, or lunatic? What's your verdict? Second piece of evidence there is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. John the Baptist is introduced to us in John chapter 1. And John the Baptist is particularly unique. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He had come at the end of a long line of guys and girls that had been prophets in the Old Testament. But he is unique and that his prophecy, he no longer pointed towards Jesus in future tense. He pointed at Jesus. No other prophet got to do that. But John the Baptist did. John the Baptist actually got to look at Jesus and in John 1 verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He actually points at Jesus Christ and effectively says to all the crowds around him, This is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, if you read the Old Testament, they've been waiting for the Messiah, the Christos. They've been waiting for one to come to take away the sin of the world. One who ultimately was going to get them back into the garden, that was going to get people back into a relationship with God again that they were actually made for. John the Baptist then points at Jesus and tells everyone, this is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. John the Baptist at that period of time was an absolute superstar. He was the David Beckham of the day. Okay? Everybody thinks he's quirky. No, this guy was rocking it up. He would be on the front page of the Judea Times every week. This dude, everybody loves John. And after that, as soon as he points to Jesus, he says, listen, I must decrease and he must increase. He's pushing everybody off himself and onto Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ claimed that he was right. He has come to take away the sin of the world. That's what the crucifixion was all about, making it possible to be forgiven of our sin. That's just one prophecy. Wilbur Smith, an American theologian, writes as follows. He says, the ancient world had many different devices for determining the future, known as divination. But not in the entire range of Greek and Latin literature, even though they use the words prophet and prophecy, can we find any real specific prophecy of a great historic event to come in the distant future, nor any prophecy of a saviour to arrive in the human race. Mohammedanism cannot point to any prophecies of the coming of Mohammed, uttered hundreds of years before his birth. Neither can the founders of any cult in this country rightly identify any ancient text specifically foretelling their appearance. Yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken by different voices over 500 years. They're in the Old Testament. 29 prophecies were fulfilled in a single day on the day he died. Jesus could have been a clever con man who deliberately set out to fulfill these prophecies in order to show that he was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. But the sheer number of them would have made it difficult He would have had no control over so many of the events. For example, the exact manner of his death was foretold in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, and burial and even the place of his birth, Micah 5 verse 2. And one's birth and death, with all due respect, are difficult things to organise. It's right. 29 prophecies relating to the death of Jesus Christ in great detail. 500 years of prophecies, 300 prophecies, 29 death-related. 
In John chapter 19, verse 18, we find out that they crucified him, meaning that his hands and his feet would well and truly have been pierced. Well, that was something that was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 16, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came on scene. In John chapter 19, verse 24, we read that the soldiers divided up his garments and they cast lots over who was going to take what of Jesus' clothes. Well, that was prophesied for us in Psalm 22, verse 18. Again, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. We then read in John 19, verse 33, that we see that not one bone of Jesus' body was broken. When the centurion goes up to break Jesus' leg bones, meaning that he would die quicker, effectively says there's no need. There's no need because he's already dead. Meaning that no bone in Jesus' body was ever broken. Well, that was prophesied in Psalm 34, verse 20, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. Over 500 years, 300 prophecies, Jesus Christ, if you study him, fulfilled every single one. Well, is that the fulfillment then of a liar, a lunatic, or God? Are they the works and fulfillments of someone who's just a loon? Or is it just more and more proof, as John keeps putting it out there for us, that he's God? He's God. He's fulfilling all the things. The third piece of evidence that John gives us then is his character, the character of Jesus Christ. Gandhi, who I don't usually quote, but Gandhi once said, I don't like you Christians, but I do like your Christ. I think he's got a fair point. To be honest, I've been a Christian for many years and I don't like all the Christians either. You know, I think sadly, if you're an unbeliever, if you're new and you're not a Christian, I think sometimes as Christians, we give ourselves a very, very bad reputation. I think it's unhelpful. And unfortunately, when I watch telly at different points and there are Christians on there, you think, please let none of my friends be watching this because you just think this is a horrible moment. We can come across as self-righteous, know-it-all. We can come across as just knowing specific things. You shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And I apologise for that because that's really not what Christianity is at all. And I think in some ways, so many Christians don't get it right when it comes to what walking as a Christian really is. But I do agree with Gandhi. I don't like you Christians, but I do like your Christ. The reason why he said that is because he looked at Christians, but he looked at Christ and said, but he's an impressive guy. And his point was that I appreciate your Christ because of his character, because of who he was the type of man that he was, the way he lived his life. You know, I had a pastor many years ago who once said to me, you know, the real test of character is not how someone acts, it's how they react. I remember it sticking with me, even as a younger guy, and thinking, yeah, I'll probably note that away. But the older I've got, the, re- the more I've realised that's exactly true. It's not how somebody acts, it's how they react. When they react when something's going on in their lives when the rubber's hitting the road, when they're walking through difficulty, that's when you find out what somebody's really made of. That's when you find out somebody's character. When they're aware that they're walking contrary to something it says in Scripture. That's when you find out what is somebody really made of. It's a character moment. But with that in mind then, look at Jesus. He's made very clear to us in John chapter 18 and verse 19. He is unjustly tried. He stands before the high priest's father-in-law. He stands before the high priest, Caiaphas. He stands before Pontius Pilate. And he is unjustly tried before them. At one point, they're saying, who do you think you are? And he says, well, you say I'm God. And at that point, they just slap his face. He's telling the truth. 
He's unjustly tried before each of these men. He's done nothing wrong. Even the Romans, in effect, are saying, I don't understand why he's here. He's guiltless for what's going on. But nonetheless, he is taken from that unjust trying. He is flogged. He is whipped. A crown of thorns is placed upon his head. A purple robe is put on his back. He's then beaten by a whole battalion. And as they're beating him to a pulp, they're laughing at him and jeering at him and saying, if you really know who I am, then prophesy. Prophesy who he is. They then grab him. He's unrecognisable by this point, read in the Bible, because he's been beaten so heavily. He's so beaten that he can't even carry his own cross. So they get Simon of Cyrene to do that and they take him to the place of Golgotha and they drive nails through his hands, nails through his feet and they hang him on a cross. It wasn't that long after this event that crucifixion just became banned because everybody decided it was too cruel. And yet Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross, said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he said, woman, talking to his mum, woman, behold your son. And he's talking to John, who has been a friend for three years, walked with him closely, his beloved disciple. He says, you know, John, behold your mother. And then he breathes his last and effectively says, it, it is finished. He breathes his last and goes up to be with the Father. My friends, is that the character of a liar? Is that the character of a lunatic? Would you be saying that on the cross if you knew I wasn't even God anyway? Would you be saying it if you're just a lunatic with so much articulation and clarity? Oh, Lord, help them, forgive them. Or is it more and more proof that he really was who he said he was? He's God. He's actually the one he always claimed to be. The fourth piece of evidence that John then gives us is his conquest over death. His resurrection. One of the cornerstones of Christianity is that Jesus not only died on a cross, but that three days later he rose again. John along with the other gospel writers, claim that when Mary and two of the disciples went to the tomb three days later after Jesus had died, the stone had been rolled away, the tomb was empty, and they claimed very clearly that the reason why that was the case is because he rose again. And the reason why they claimed that is because we saw him. Now, there are a lot of conspiracy theories. I know there are conspiracy theories today, WikiLeaks and the like. There were conspiracy theories 2,000 years ago as well. Everybody, it's just human nature. We all like a bit of conspiracy. So there was loads of conspiracy theories around. Hang on a minute. Yep, sure, the tomb is empty. But let's not jump to conclusions that he's risen again. One conspiracy theory was the idea that Jesus had not actually died. So somehow he had, you know, struggled out and actually pushed the 2,000 pound stone out the way, run past the guards somehow, and was living happily ever after in some part of Bethlehem or something. Only knows. You know, this idea was that he, he probably wasn't actually dead. That's the most ludicrous conspiracy theory I've possibly ever heard in my life. I mean, for a start, the centurions, they were trained killers. They knew exactly how to kill people. The very fact that they stuck a dagger through his side, a spear through his side, and they pierced his heart sack, meaning that blood and water came out as a giveaway that he's definitely dead. 
The centurions, the rule was in this time in Roman history that if you got a man down and he wasn't dead, then you're going up there. You make sure he's dead. So that's a crazy theory that he wasn't actually dead. He is well and truly dead. Second conspiracy theory is that maybe the disciples stole the body, that it's just a big cover-up, that it's what they're doing. That's an interesting theory, but the truth is, if you read your Bibles, when the disciples saw what had happened to Jesus, when Jesus got arrested, one of the points of the Bible is they don't stick around with him. They are scared stiff. They run off. They are in absolute disarray. They are in disillusionment. They think that maybe they have backed the wrong guy, that somehow something's gone wrong and they're just utterly confused and they are very fearful that the, that the people, the Romans, are going to come after him, after these guys as disciples, just in the same way they did at Jesus and they'll end up getting crucified just like Jesus did. They're scared stiff and they're keeping out the way. And we see them that way all the way through until post-resurrection Jesus Christ. And yet after they meet post-resurrection Jesus Christ... Many of the disciples, actually apart from one, are tortured and martyred. Many of the people that claim to have seen the risen Jesus Christ in their hundreds were actually fed to lions, sawed in half. One of them was crucified upside down. It became very common practice during this season of time that they would take Christians and they would tie them to poles and they would cover them in tar and then light them and they would be torches for the Romans in the nights. The reason why those Christians went through with that is because they were unwilling to back down on one thing. And that thing was this. We've seen the risen Christ. And we're standing on it. Why would you do that if you stole the body? I wouldn't. If I've stolen the body and I just know, gosh, he's still dead, so he clearly can't have been God, I'm going to live in my life and do something else and move in cities. These guys stayed, they stood for truth and they refused to be backed down because they were so utterly convinced we've seen him. We know he's risen again and so we know even if you kill us, we will rise again and be with him. So I'm standing on this truth. Well, is that then the resurrection of a liar, a lunatic or the Lord? You know, Jesus Christ appeared to the disciples, not just once, but on 11 different occasions. Not just to one or two people, but if you read the Gospels, you realise he appeared to over 550 people. If you were in a court of law and you had the time to interview 550 people on did you see Jesus, and they come through, yes, I saw him, this is what he looked like, I recognise him, I saw him before, I see him now, you'd have to be an incredibly stubborn jury to say, oh, I don't believe him. 550 people, one after another after another. Anybody who knows law knows that's a very strong case. That's why John's telling you. And the whole point, what the season that he's writing in is that sense of these people are still alive, so go ask them. He starts to name people. Oh, that person was there and that person was there. Go ask them. He's putting it as evidence that, yeah, Jesus rose again. Or did he rise as a liar? A lunatic? Or did he rise as Lord? Last piece of evidence then, number five, is his followers. See, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence, I think, that John details for us throughout the Gospel is the sheer number of people that encounter Jesus and after encountering Jesus, they go away and believe. They really believe that he is the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is going to come to take away the sin of the world. 
Some people are befriended by Jesus, so the disciples are all befriended by Jesus. The woman of Samaria, she sits with Jesus at the well and she spends time with him and she, she goes away from that, claiming to everybody she meets outside of that. She actually runs into Sychar and tells them all about it. I've just met the Christ. I've just met this guy. You need to come and see him. They all leave Jesus, having been befriended by Jesus, believing he really is God. Some people encountered his teaching, the citizens of Sychar. They were all on the, the receiving end of the woman of Samaria. They all come running out, literally in their hundreds and thousands, to Jesus. Everybody is curious. And at the end of it, they make basically a communal statement as a crowd, saying, you know, before we only believed because the woman told us, but now we believe because we've seen him with our own eyes and we've heard him. Hundreds of people believing that Christ has come. People that encountered Jesus in the crowds, at the feasts, at the temple, during famous speeches where he claimed to be the light of the world, where he claimed that rivers of living water were flowing from him that could never be quenched if we would accept them in our lives. And people were turning to Jesus and believing in these truths. Other people encountered his miracles, the wedding at Cana, the feeding of the 5,000, the resurrection of Lazarus. There are people around in all these different things and as you read the miracles, what you realise is people are putting their faith in Jesus. I would too if I'm there and seeing these things. You think, this is amazing. This is clearly him. And other people encountered the risen saviour. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands of people as you study the Gospel of John that encounter Jesus and go away believing. That's strong evidence. They were actually there. They were actually encountering this guy. And added to their evidence, I think, is the lives of the millions of people who over the last 2,000 years have also gone in to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, of which I am one. See, we come into view right at the end of chapter 20, where he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He starts to look out at the people that are going to come after the disciples who aren't actually going to see Jesus with their own eyes, but they're going to hear of him and then go on to believe. And there are literally millions of people who over the last 2,000 years have read the Bible, encountered Jesus in the Bible, have heard the gospel, and their lives have been turned upside down. Many of them are in this room. And I'm one of those guys. See, growing up, I went to a church all my life. I was bored stiff. Utterly bored stiff. I couldn't wait for the preacher to finish. And he only did 15-minute sermons back then, and it felt like an eternity. It was utter horror. We sang some songs, didn't even get it anyway. I'm not that interested in it. Oh, it's finished. Great. Let's go play football out the back. That's all I wanted to do. I was completely uninterested. And although I look back, and I'm very, very grateful that I grew up in a Christian home, I'm aware that growing up in it, I just thought of Christianity as nice stories and nice people. And I recognise there's a lot of nice people about, and I'm hearing lots of nice stories. And their stories, but thanks for playing. But then in my teenage years, particularly as I got older in my teenage years, two things started to come alive to me. Through a series of events in my life, the gospel came alive to me. First of all, through the Bible. I remember studying the Bible because I was utterly convinced that it wasn't really true, to be fully honest. And, I, and because I'd been taught as a Christian growing up, I just thought, if I can show that this isn't true, I can crack on and live my life how I want to live it. So this would be really helpful. So, so I decided I've got to bottom out, is this for real? And I surprised myself. The more I studied about the Bible, how it was written, how it was put together, 
the evidence that is there for the manuscripts and so forth, I was convinced this, this really has got some substance to it. This hasn't just been changed throughout time. But this, this holds. So I started to actually read it, something I didn't really do growing up. And to my astonishment, I found this isn't a, a book full of rules at all. This is a story about a great rescue mission. This is a story about how Jesus Christ came to rescue the world. This is a story of a saviour, a messiah who came after us in grace and compassion and splendour. And the truth about Jesus came alive in my heart. As I started to hear about what he has done through books like the Gospel of John, the fact that in grace in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, And the word took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and came after mankind and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin and adopted into the family of God and could know heaven was our home. I became amazed by this stuff and I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour and I've never looked back. If somebody said to me, do you really believe Jesus is God? I would look back at you and say, with all my heart I do. And I live my life accordingly. It's faith. And I'm one of millions, both people that were here at the time and have seen him and encountered him since through his word. Well, is that the work then of a liar? Is that the work of a lunatic? Or is that the profound work of the one he said he was? The Lord, God, the one who took on flesh as God to come after us, revealing exactly what God is like and who he is. Sherlock Holmes, I quoted Gandhi, so I may as well you know, go with Sherlock Holmes. He says this, he says, When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Folks, I submit to you then, this really is the truth. This is truth and the reason why John wrote it to us is that so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you're a Christian here today, I trust the Gospel of John has encouraged and strengthened your faith. Because that's exactly what it was for. That's why he wrote it. To strengthen you. This is real. Live for Jesus Christ. Stand on these things. Live in light of them because this is true. We don't just have to stand and talk to our friends about Jesus thinking, well, I don't really know the answer, but my mum told me a time ago and I suppose I'm... T-. No, this is true. Read the Bible and stand on it because this isn't flaky evidence. This is great stuff. So I trust it has strengthened and encouraged your faith. But if you are not a Christian and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, here's the question I want to ask you. Having then examined the evidence today, what's your verdict? Who do you believe he is? Who do you say he is? Maybe you think, "Ah, I think he was a lunatic. Okay. Or maybe you think, I think he was a liar. Okay. I disagree with you, but I'll still be your friend. I don't have a problem with that. But maybe actually, as you look at the evidence, you say, you know what? He's clearly Lord. He's clearly God. As you look at his miracles and his works and his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, his followers, and the fact that all these people claim to have seen him and went on to die for the faith. This is clearly God. 
Well, I want to encourage you that if you believe in that way, then follow the example of Thomas. See, prior to this moment where John gives us the purpose of the book, he gives us an illustration of Thomas. Thomas also started doubting. He was wondering, is, Je- is Jesus really alive? Has he really come back? And they're saying to him, he has, he has. And he said, I need to see him, I need to encounter him. Well, that's exactly what happens. And the result of it all is that Thomas finishes the whole gospel by saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. He doesn't just believe, he says, yeah, I believe, and then cracks on living his life how he wants to. He believes in the way that it changes his life. He says, I really believe that you are God. I really believe that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and so you are my King and my God, and so I bow my knee to you and I want to live for you. That's what the Gospel of John has been trying to lead us toward all along. He's been trying to present truth to us so that we may see evidence, may believe in a way that we fall to our knees and say, you are my Lord and my God. And as we do that, do you know what we start to experience? Life and that in abundance. Because we know what it is to be forgiven and adopted if heaven is our home, reconciled to God. So folks, if you're not a Christian and yet you say, you know what, I do believe this, I think he's God then put your faith in him as your Lord and Saviour today. Declare him, just like Thomas, as your Lord and your King. Put your faith in him and you'll know this life. That's what Christianity really is, you know. Christianity isn't primarily about doing things for God. Not at all. Christianity is all about what God has done for us and putting our faith in him in response. Do that today. And let you know life then. You will experience life. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we bring the Gospel of John to a close, Lord, we do thank you for it. We thank you for how you have so clearly written through John to scribe for us your greatness and your worth and just how incredible what Jesus Christ has done in our place is. Oh, Lord, with that truth then, affect each and every person in this room. Lord, whether we trust in you as Lord and Saviour or whether there are still people in our midst that doubt, Lord, would you break into hearts and equip hearts and change hearts and bring faith to hearts. Lord, for all those that are still considering and wondering, Lord, even as we sing this song now to close, would their expression of faith to you through their minds to you would be, Lord, I do take you as my Lord and God. I put my faith in you. Oh Lord, with their new life then as Christians then begin. A life that I know they'll never, never look back from. So Lord, help us all in your precious name. Amen.